0: Hi and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation and News Director at New Lines Magazine. Um, Before we get started, I just wanted to um, say a special note of tribute and memorial to uh, Iana Sadova. She was the producer and editor of Foreign Office, as many of you know. Um, About a week ago, she succumbed to cancer, breast cancer, which she'd been struggling with since 2009. Uh, Jana was an incredible partner uh, and, and technician for this show, managed to splice everything expertly, including taking out uh, my own lapses of, um, shall we say, verbal judgment from time to time. Um, and she had been living in her hometown, a village north of Kiev, in and out of hospital since the war began. And no doubt the, the stress of the situation um, did not contribute to her maintaining a, a good health so um i just wanted to let my listeners know that that we've lost an integral part of foreign office but in in yana's spirit uh, we will carry on i i know she would want us to uh, work to her was was almost everything um and so with that somber note i i want to introduce my next guest um phillips o'brien is a professor of strategic studies at the university of st andrews uh he's also been one of the I think most, uh, I think I described him as the most darkly humorous and sobering voices uh, watching the war in Ukraine um, for his insights that actually, from the very beginning, none of this went Russia's way, um, in contradiction to much of what the analytic community, certainly here in the United States, but no doubt elsewhere in the West, including where he is in the United Kingdom, um, had anticipated. Uh, We'd heard all kinds of Um, forecast that Kyiv would fall within 48 to 72 hours, not least of which from the United States. Uh, Officials who've been briefed in the media, uh, command and control of the Ukrainian military would be lost within 30 minutes. The entirety of the Ukrainian air force would be taken out in a similar space of time. All of that proved to be, shall we say, false (laughs) and not accurate at all. (laughs) And I just wanted to ask um, uh, Professor O'Brien, you know, Phillips, you, you've, you, clearly this is your bailiwick studying military affairs, and, and you were watching this war unfold in real time, as were we all. What struck you the most about Russia's failure to do any of the things I just described that they had, that everyone seemed to have thought that they were gonna be expertly capable of doing very quickly?
1: Well, first of all, I mean, well, I think we have to start by, first of all, why did they say that? I mean, that's yeah. that's an, that's a fascinating question in and of itself. Why yeah. you would assume a military that hasn't run a complex operation, such as an invasion of Kiev or invasion of all of Ukraine would be able to pull off something like that. That you know, That in and of itself is a question. If I say what instantly or quickly showed to me that this operation uh, was really problematic for the Russians and they were not showing the ability to pull off the kind of maneuvers everyone seemed to think. There were two things in the opening day, the simple fact that they didn't gain control of the air. Yeah. This was just, you know, this is a fundamental test. If the United States, and, and I think actually this this puts someone of the problem uh, that the uh, the American military was assuming what the American military would be able to do. Or the American Air Force would be able to do in such a situation, gain control of the air. But why they assume the Russian military could do what the US military could do is a bit beyond me, but they obviously did. But the fact is, the Russians didn't gain control of the air early on. In fact, the Ukrainians showed a great deal of capability in the air, both from fixed wing to large SAM systems to handheld SAMs, and and, and the Russians had difficulty dealing with it. And secondly, there was that. Rambo-like operation at Hostomel Airport, which just seemed to be based on the reality that they thought the Ukrainians wouldn't fight, right? Or certainly, certainly wouldn't fight well. You don't just sort of inject force in this kind of uh, slipshod, aggressive way uh, if you are expecting the kind of, of of pushback the Ukrainians got. So the one that the Russians seem to be acting as if they believe their own. Propaganda,
0: And what's bizarre about that, and you know, from the Ukrainian side, I was in Kiev a few weeks before the war started and every Ukrainian I spoke to from deputies in the Rada to the secretary of their National Security Council to former commandos from the, uh, you know, the, the Donetsk International Airport siege, the so-called cyborgs, every, every single person did not think there was going to be a full-scale invasion with regime change as the strategic objective. And they were wrong for the right reason. They were wrong because they thought, if Putin is stupid enough to try it, this is the kind of situation he will find himself in. Um, you know He will choke on Ukraine, as, as one deputy put it to me. And yet, you know, they were basing this on their own hard-won experience over the last eight years of fighting conventional Russian military forces in Donbass. So my question would be, why didn't the Russians, having been very much in that battle themselves from the other side, why didn't they have any kind of situational awareness of who their adversary was in terms of, you know, their morale, their resiliency, their willingness to fight? It seems like, you know, I mean, the latest line is that Putin has been misled by his advisors and by his his general staff and, and his intelligence services. No doubt, to, to some degree, that's true. But mm-hmm. I, I find it a little bit hard to believe that they, they didn't kind of give him a more... Um, realistic appraisal, at least early days when he was mulling this invasion and, and indeed building up these forces at the border since what, September, October? I mean, what is your assessment of kind of, you know, is it, is it simply a case of the Russians thinking themselves 10 feet tall when they're not even four feet tall or three feet tall? Uh, <laughs> or is it, is it, you know, I mean, did they just think, oh, you know, those adorable Ukrainians, we're, we're just gonna wipe the floor with them the minute we, we send our VDV paratroopers and our GRU Spetsnaz
1: into Kyiv. Uh, there's a whole bunch of factors that the fact and by the way, I was one of those who never thought that Putin would go for full scale invasion for precisely the reason that he would be losing control at that point And you know, the war could spin out of control. And I, I always thought he was so set on self-preservation amongst everything else that he wouldn't yeah. take such a risk to his own position. So I was wrong on that. But I think uh, if we start from the foundation that he still does believe in self-preservation, that tells you a lot that means that he thought this would be easy because if he thought it would be going into this disaster that it's spiraling into now, I don't think he would have done it. I think he would have actually been, been uh, cautious enough not to go in. So it's a combination of the two things you mentioned. Um, one is that he obviously thought that the Russian military, he, he believed what he was, both being told and wanted to believe about Russian military capabilities. Now, why he believed that is fascinating because they had never shown the ability to launch complex land air operations, neither in in Chechnya or Georgia, had they tried anything close to what they were trying. But I think he thought, okay, I've given my military all this money over the last few years. And maybe because also there has been a lot of Putin and I use this phrase with a grain of salt, there's been a lot of Putin praise in the media over the last few years for being this brilliant strategist. The the most dangerous man in the world, Uh, the man who basically subverted the American presidency, the man who caused Brexit. And so there's been a lot of this sort of widespread praise for Putin's supposed strategic genius so i think that played a huge role in his own vision of himself that he he was almost too clever for his own good as for the ukrainians i think they basically were going back to a, a vision of ukraine that was soviet union period yeah that this is yeah this is a russian particularly east ukraine is a russian area and they would be be delighted to be to be part of russia to that be point. emancipated
0: from their, their Nazi junta that never was. Yeah. yeah, I mean, now, of course, you know, the, the line has shifted that that it was never about sacking Kyiv or regime change. <laughs> it was always to distract them up north so they yeah. could divert their resources to Donbass and create their land bridge along the southeastern littoral to connect Crimea to, to Russia. But even in, in, in the east, it seems, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that they're not <laughs> consolidating their gains as swiftly as they'd have hoped. I mean, I, I'm looking at a map um, put together by Nathan Roosser, who's a very um, shrewd and, and talented um, observer of satellite footage. And I think he's one of the guys, he's based in Australia who first um, sort of noticed the internment camps springing up in Xinjiang and, and was you know, saying there's actual physical visu- visual evidence of, of Uyghur and Turkic Muslim internment happening in China. Anyway, his maps I, I, I think of as far more uh, precise and reliable than stuff we've seen in the BBC or CNN and so on with those kind of scary gradients of red suggesting this is everything that russia controls when they don't really control that at all these areas are either contested or these are kind of where their you know supply lines and their logistic lines are are, are moving but as we've seen i mean their tanks get stuck in the mud uh you know their uh their air air defense systems are abandoned by the side of the road whether because the people operating them just don't want this fight and are deserting and running off into the woods, or these these vehicles are simply breaking down because of poor maintenance. I, I wanted to get your view. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's you, you make a case and, and give the historical precedent that Russia has never attempted something of this sc- scope and scale before. Mm-hmm. But to, to your mind, what is it intrinsically about <clears throat> their military that it seems like all of this fancy kit and equipment, the things, the bright, shiny new army that the defense minister Shoigu had been promising Putin, and that they'd been exhibiting in Rzabornik export exp- expos and, and these training exercises for years, it all looks like crap. <laughs> I mean, it all looks like it like, like they, they're basically they, they're 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 driving lemons into Ukraine. Um, I mean, is this something that you had studied or noticed uh, in advance, or that you you would have said, look, you know? Um, there's a lot of Potemkin theater going on in terms of Russia's military reforms. Let's take all of this with a pinch of salt and not not suggest that they're quite as modern and
1: sophisticated as they would like us to believe. Well, there's so much in that question. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll go down a few things. One, I think what the war showed, and this is one thing I was trying to say beforehand. If there's a disconnect between your actual economic technological capabilities as a society and your military, that's a problem. Yeah. And so you know, we looked at Russia as having this great military force, but wait, wait, what is Russia? I mean, my, my favorite way of describing Russia to say my students and others is Russia is a, a nuclear superpower, a military mid-ranking power and an economic small power. Mm. And it's not an economic technological power. I mean, it's a resource extraction economy, which is in many ways the laziest kind of economy. Right, because you don't have to, to make stuff. You don't have to be productive. You just take resources out of the ground and sell them to consumers. So it would be very, first of all, it would be very unusual for a resource extraction economy to be able to produce a really high quality, self-perpetuating military. Mm. You could often buy really good stuff, but if you are a resource extraction economy and not a large one, you know, Russia's Tenth, eleventh largest economy in the world, and 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 by the way, going down those ranks, you know, from what we can see, the Russian economy is going to contract significantly. Yeah, uh, in the year, why, under what precedent would you say that would be a good military? Right. Um, yeah. It just. It, it, I think so much of it is a hangover from the Cold War when we looked at the big bad Soviet Union, which, by the way, we overrated militarily in the Cold War as well. Um, and so I think that was, it, it, it was an ability to accept the weaponry, and not uh, then actually look at the fundamentals of power, which the fundamentals of power are working themselves out now, because the Russians really have to decide to, whether they're going to put together another army, because right. this army will be spent relatively soon.
0: And what is your your sort of estimation of, of how relatively soon? I mean, I, I we we had interviewed at New Lines, uh, the director of Estonia's foreign intelligence service. I think week one mm-hmm. or two of the war, who said, "Look, we don't we assess that they they can't carry this on for more than two months. They two would simply run out of manpower resources." Um, is that is that does that conform to your own yeah. sort of you know, I
1: mean right? I I think you know, since they sent of the original invasion force I think 100% of it was over the border within 2 weeks. Yeah. Or you know well over 95% was over the border within 2 weeks. I think it's a safe rule of thumb that 2 months 8 weeks after that point that force will be spent. This is really stressful combat. Yeah. for the Russians that particularly because they didn't expect it you know, the soldiers from really did, or a lot of them did expect this to be relatively easy mm. to 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 not be that, and then to be found in a situation where you could have your you know, vehicle blown up at any time, you can't sleep, the weather's cold, um, there's people dying all around you. Soldiers can only take that for so long, um, and particularly when they're not going forward. Yeah, well, you know, we, when I mean, there,
0: there have been, credible reports of soldiers, you know, getting frostbite, They, their MREs that expired in 2002, they're insisting <laughs> yeah. on dry rations, or, you know, they're trying to turn this into some kind of sadistic holiday and they're looting liquor stores and, and swigging absinthe for the first time and then calling their girlfriends back in Russia saying, you know, it's amazing, I flew with the Green Ferry last night. I mean, the Ukrainians, they have better stuff than we do. Um, so, but what do you make then of this idea? Okay, fine. So the, the battle for Kiev is not over completely, but subsiding mm-hmm. and the, the Ukrainians are pressing counter-offensives, yep. both in the, 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 the Northwest and the Northeast axis, the, the sort of Sunni the Sumi mm-hmm. area. Um, mm-hmm. What do you make then of this redeployment to Donbass, attempts to consolidate uh, their, their land bridge area? I mean, it, it does look like Mariupol is not going to, Withstand mm-hmm. the Russian siege for very much longer, just given the sheer number of forces they've got left, which we don't even know what that that figure is. But the Ukrainians are still fighting in the city, but it doesn't look good for them there. But just long term, I mean, okay, a hundred percent of their their forces that were raided the border now in country. Of that, we don't even know what the attrition rate is. I mean, you know, if it's anything close to the figures that NATO had been throwing up I mean, 14 to 17,000 killed in action, which would suggest three times as many casualties, right? You're looking at a situation of 40 to 50,000 taken off the chessboard, right? Right. Out of a a number of, it was 190,000 and the remainder are bogged down, they're in trenches. Uh, Some of them are engaged in active combat. Do you think that even if they have uh, kind of rejiggered their strategic objectives to just focus on the East, that they'll be able to do even that at this point.
1: Well, no, I mean, you know, there's stories that have just come out in the last hour that the Russians have finally taken Izium, mm. which you know, they've been trying to take for weeks now, Yeah, but still Izium lives them a long way from just snipping off a part of the Donbass. You know, right. That's not the entire Donbass. That's just part of the Donbass. We don't even know if they can go down that road after having taken Izium. I mean, one of the problems they're going to face now is they're, if they're pulling out of Kiev and the evidence is they're pull, the Russians are pulling out of Kiev are significant forces. The Ukrainians, which have had a lot of their best forces in Kiev can now actually redeploy to the Donbass much more quickly than the Russians. Right. Because the Russians are gonna have to go north and around. And By the way, the Russian army is probably gonna not be that wild about going back into combat. Right. I mean, if you're pulled out of Kiev, the last thing you wanna do is to go to, to, you know, fight in the Donbass. Yeah. But the problem also with the Donbass, to see the Donbass strategy is what I call, it sounds so militarily intelligent, but it's politically really problematic. So, okay. You face the reality, your original strategy failed. You had no idea what you were doing. You underrated the Ukrainians. You couldn't take Ukraine. So now you're gonna be really clever and just try to take a pretty small snippet of Ukraine to the east and declare victory. Well, the only problem is you can't declare victory because the Ukrainian government actually has a say in this. Right. And what Russia then is holding out is the prospect of a long-term war under the crippling economic sanctions that they're getting hit by. So it's one of those, fine, maybe they take more of the Donbass, but Ukraine now is going to put pressure on that. Russia is going to be involved in a war in the far east of Ukraine. Mm. Is it going to start using more conscripts? This army will be gone. This army will need massive reinforcement if you're Russian in and, and, you know, a few more weeks. Will you start you know, turning this into a sort of continual long bloody mess? So it, it, in many ways, the Eastern strategy is a strategy for a long war. Unless you are gambling, the Ukrainian government will reach a deal with you letting you have some of it. Um, but that's a pretty risky deal to make because politically Ukraine looks very united. Yeah. And indeed they have the wind in their sails. The general Ukrainian narrative now is about a war they believe they can win. I can't imagine the Ukrainian government would simply hand over part of its territory. Right. So it's one of those that militarily, it may make some sense, but politically, it it's a bit of a difficult strategy to pull off.
0: Well, and also there's another component of this, which goes back to the pre-war, well, I should say that the pre, current war, like third invasion scenario, which was, you know, and and this is, I I just, every Ukrainian would would sort of say this to me, um, nobody really liked the Minsk protocols because they were imposed upon Ukraine and they were written in such a way as to favor Russia, right? you know, uh, we, you, you, the, the all mercenary forces would be withdrawn. Well, of course that's not gonna happen because, you know, Russia's got plenty of mercenary forces and they've also got conventional forces in Donbass. Um, but there was a sense that, you know, a lot of Ukrainians were spoiling for a fight that they could not wage without breaking this agreement and precipitating a, you know, a, a Russian war. Well, now that war has come without them having Broken the agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, you know, even those who had been preparing for some kind of insurgency, or had been trying to undercut the Zelensky administration, I mean, his poll numbers were 27% uh, just weeks before the war began. Now they're in the 90s. There's a, a great sense of cohesion and unity across all sectors of, of Ukraine. And mm-hmm. I can well see them saying, okay, fine, you know, Kyiv is secure, let's redirect our forces eastward and start chipping away at the Russians and, and chipping away, frankly, at areas that had once fallen within the domain of the LNR and DNR territories. I mean, those guys I'm seeing are getting captured as well in the current mm-hmm. fight. Uh, there was a, a video that was going around the other day. It looked like a collapsed house or some kind of barracks and they were just coming out one by one, You know, like, like rats escaping a wall of, of a, <laughs> the decrepit architecture. And I put this video across to a, a guy from Ukraine military, military intelligence. And I said, "You know, do you recognize any of these guys or, or are these kind of veterans from eight years ago? He said, yeah, they are. I could tell just based on the clothes and the kit that they're carrying. So you have people who have been essentially entrenched since 2014, 2015, who are now in active combat duty um, who are also getting a trident in the current uh, state of play. So, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I just, I, I'm struggling to try to imagine, especially given the poor performance we've seen thus far and you know, everyone keeps saying, well, you know, the Ukraine, the, the Russians will just get their acts together. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, the TTPs are going to change. The strategy will change. They're just biding their time before they really kind of bring out the heavy hitters and all that. Really? I mean, is that, is that how it works? It, well, it, you know,
1: <laughs> no, because I mean, that's what we heard. I remember uh, my, my, Favorite one along those lines was about a week into the campaign, we heard the Russians were just about to get their logistics operations in order. Yeah, that was, they're just about to get their logistics and they're gonna move on Kiev, you know, and there was nothing, sort. I mean, I, I can't see them getting their act together in any meaningful way in the short term because they've used their best troops. Right. So you know, i.e., you're going to be using less good troops to be doing difficult operations. It's hard to imagine them performing actually that much better. Right. Certainly in the short term, and there, and there are even stories nowadays about Russian soldiers refusing to to go to Ukraine. Yeah, there was an interesting story I think in the FT earlier about uh, Russians refusing a deployment or actually trying to, to almost mutiny with the prospect of going to Ukraine. So I can't imagine that people are chomping at the bit. Right. To be and no deployed. doubt, I mean,
0: stories are coming back to Russia of how miserable and awful it is this war that, you know, yeah. I mean, people are, are well aware even if they pretend not to be and they they are rallying around the flag in Levada poles and so on and so forth. Um, and now there's another factor too, which I think is interesting. I mean, the UK has been very front footed about this uh, let's start giving the Ukrainians offensive weaponry, uh, long-range uh, fire capability, artillery, these kinds of things. So that's designed basically to hit the Russians as they retreat, but also, it seems to me, to press further in in, in terms of counteroffensive. So the Ukrainians have shocked the world in being quite capable to defend of the, defending themselves. Now, I think NATO has begun to shift. I mean, obviously there's still political calculations, especially here in, in the United States, what is escalatory, what is not. But mm. you know, Turkey doesn't seem to have a problem supplying them with more Bayraktar TB2 drones. They might even get new advanced model drones from what mm. I understand. Uh, Boris Johnson seems very gung-ho to provide them with, they're getting the, the, the what is it? The star streak um, mm. Uh, mm. air defense system, which is a bit cut above the stinger from what I understand. Yep. Um, you know, and now it seems like we're starting to give them the, the military equipment to really go after the Russians in a way that we had refrained from before, because again, it was this idea of a political solution to an eight year crisis, that's now gone, that's spent. So, I mean, do you see this as, as, as kind of all of a sudden, you know, the, the Russians are, are bleeding, they're weak, they're vulnerable, and now is the time. I mean, if we really wanna cut Putin down to size, um, you know, rather than NATO fight this army, which of course is not going to happen, the Ukrainians are are willing. They're they're actually keen to do so, and you know, as long as that's the case, let's give them what we can within reason to to kind of really take it to the other side.
1: Well, I think that I think sort of you know the U.S. and NATO on the whole would prefer this to be over sooner rather than later. Yeah. I mean I know I've I've read sort of stuff. Oh, they want to bleed Russia white. Well, no, this is this is a, an element of instability in the world. Right. So I think they would rather it be over sooner sooner rather than later than have it drag on. Their ideal solution would be for someone in Russia to overthrow Putin. Right. Yeah, that would be the the number one goal that if you know, someone realizes this war is such a mess that the person who started it is discredited and, and get rid of them. There, the, the change in weaponry was fascinating and it's because they really, to begin with, you went for this smaller level handheld stuff because they, I think they saw this evolving into a guerrilla war. Right. The assumption was that Ukraine, Eastern Ukraine would fall very quickly, Kiev would fall very quickly. And what you would end up doing is getting yourselves involved in a long-term guerrilla war to, to suck Russia dry. Uh, and they weren't even thinking, you know, the, the, about going to the kind of weaponry they're talking about now. Yeah. The, the, the calculation they're making is, what do the Ukrainians need right now? And as you say, to what degree would that be escalatory to the Russians? So actually, I've been one of those. I actually think they were quite wise not to go to the no-fly zone because they set in a sense an escalatory ceiling. right. And by not having the no-fly zone, you can actually push up to that with more advanced weaponry and say we're not taking the big step. You know well, we're, I mean- we're not going to go to a no-fly zone, but therefore we can give you better better anti-air.
0: Well, what I've noticed from the Ukrainian side, I mean, and, and, you know, look, I I don't mean to undercut their sort of strategic communications here, but, you know, Zelensky asked for a no fly zone, but every Ukrainian official I've spoken to said, well, we know we're not going to get that because we know that's just the United States going to war with Russia. But as you say, that sets a ceiling such that anything below that seems a kind of reasonable reasonable compromise. So then it became, well, just give us the MiG-29s from Poland and we'll take it from there. And that whole thing was a fiasco. And a, so now it's a game of hot potato. Everyone's kind of passing it along. It's not, a, it's not on us. It's on the, the Americans. No, it's it's on the polls and so on and so forth. And then there was this weird thing yesterday that the Ukrainian air force started yeah. this, this tweet about, you know, this threads actually just give us f uh, F-15 and F-16 fighter jets. And our pilots can fly them within two to three weeks. And I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I, I'm the last person to, to, to downplay the capability of Ukraine's air force, but that seems a bit yeah. odd. And that's, that <laughs> actually seems to me like another gambit, like, okay, we're going to ask for, you know, the moon, you'll give us the stars instead.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I assume that's by the way, saying we really, really want the Migs. Right. <laughs> you know, really want we're going to, we're, we're, you know, we're asking for the F-15s, F-16s, but we'll take the makes, Right. Um, and that's a way of getting... I mean, I think it's... It, you know, they have done remarkable things with fixed-wing aircraft uh, that, you know, I, I never thought they'd have the... client, And I've been you know, quite bullish on Ukrainian prospects. Yeah. I assumed more than a month into the campaign, they wouldn't have much in the way of fixed-wing, but hopefully I thought they'd be able to have kept the Russians at bay with anti-air so we'd reach a stalemate. But what they've actually done is quite extraordinary by keeping some fixed wing aircraft flying, which yeah. is making the Russians very nervous. So I originally was a little, you know, when I looked at the MiGs and I thought, well, is that actually the key thing? Because how long can they keep them flying and any, you know, in any reasonable scenario? But now I think they're making a very good case that if you get the MiGs to them, they can use them with very good effect. Yeah. And so I wonder, I wonder if there's uh, some movement on that, but it's hard to say.
0: Right. And I mean, I, you know, from what I gather, they do have pilots that can fly MiGs and it's not, you know, the variety from Poland to Ukraine is, you know, it's nothing that would, would deter a pilot from learning how to, fly the same basic airframe, as long as you strip out the NATO equipment and reflag and all the rest of it. The question is how do we get them from Poland to Ukraine? You know, mm-hmm. can, can you fly from Polish airspace? Is that escalatory? Can you put them on flatbed trucks and kind of smuggle them in by ground and, and all of that? Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it, it does seem like they have defied expectation all across the board, including in, in, in you know, denying Russia I mean, they don't even have air superiority at the moment,
1: right? I mean, it's all very contested, and this is going into month two. Contested Um, is, or even in some ways, oddly, non-existent. I mean, what I've I've been tweeting about it recently, you see Ukrainian-operated vehicles on main roads near the Russian border and clear blue skies. Yeah. Yeah, There was the one yesterday, two uh, um, Ukrainian tanks flying Ukrainian flags near Kharkov, close to the Russian border uh, on a major highway. Now that should not, by any pre-war understanding of air power, that would not be happening now. Right. Uh, and yet the Ukrainians seem to be able to move around in daylight with relatively little uh, worry. So it's not that the airspace is contested. I think in many ways, the Russians have abandoned a lot of say search and destroy missions. They're just not flying them. What they are flying is your know, raids to hit, try and hit specific targets, yeah. but that's get in, get out, don't scoot around, don't take risks. So, I mean, contested is in, maybe it's more in the sense they just can't operate in a way that we had gotten used to air power operating, say by the United States. They yeah. just can't do it.
0: Well, I wanna come back to something we had discussed a little bit earlier is this, this idea, this kind of projection of you know, American analysis of how this war would go was largely based on, this is how we would fight such a campaign, yeah. right? So this this false assumption that we do, the Russian way of war is very similar to the American way of war. But there's ample experience to suggest that's just not the case i mean in 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 syria which was in in a weird way kind of a proving ground i think for so much of the high estimation that we attributed to the russian capability it was basically a squadron of fighter jets just dropping bombs willy-nilly on everything and in fact targeting civilian Infrastructure, hospitals, bakeries doing these double tap sorties where you drop one bomb and then you wait for the rescue crews to come and then you drop another bomb just to terrorize the local population. They face no air defense systems of which to speak. And God knows, I mean, I I was intimately aware of, of the demands of the Free Syrian Army and rebel groups, which were dying for Stinger missiles. Um, the best that, that they had was you know a an wire guided anti-tank system provided by the CIA, which most of them didn't even prefer to their to the French uh, Fajot uh, equivalent uh, if you if you queried them. So it, 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 this is apples and oranges. I mean it's, this was not a conventional military adversary. Um, and now you know again, we're, we're sort of projecting, well, you know the Russians sh- should be doing it this way and, and it's only a matter of time before they get their, you know, their they're, they're act together and, and start to do it. Do you think that there is now a dawning awareness at the Pentagon, um, DIA, CIA, uh, whoever else is involved in kind of creating these assessments that, okay, look, Russia's military is a busted flush. What would you do if you were in, in a position to uh, advise the president of the United States right now? Keep keep the, the supplies running, keep the fires burning hot so long as the Ukrainians want it? As yes. Such?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, w- I would do two things actually. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and slightly different when it comes to getting the Ukrainians what you want, you high prioritize it and you keep making it and you, you, know, you, you make that absolutely high priority. What I wouldn't do then however, is throw billions at the defense budget right away to build mm-hmm. what you have. I think what, you, this is a larger question on war but I think what we're seeing in this war is actually something that has been hypothesized for decades maybe more than half a century, but we haven't seen. Mm. And that is the, you know, the, the real effectiveness of handheld small arms, small weapons, not small arms, but handhelds weapons against, say, heavier vehicles. This is something that begins in the Second World War with yeah. you know, things like the Panzerfaust. Now, everyone assumed that, or talked about as if that would ever come, that would come a day, but that day had never yet come partly because I think the, I say when the United States went to war, it had air dominance right, or, or others. But maybe what we are seeing now is we, the, the, the change away from the heavy vehicle. The heavy vehicle is really quite vulnerable. I would argue in this kind of battle, you know, the Russians have not actually done a lot with their tanks, from what we can tell. Most of their destruction has come from their artillery. Yeah. Um, So I wouldn't be, if I were the Americans, I wouldn't be throwing lots of billions right now into their new capacities because we don't actually know what they're going to need. Right. I would, however, prioritize getting the Ukrainians everything they need. So spend in one area, save in the other until you can really digest the lessons. Because we do have to go back and, as a strategic studies community, we have to have our own introspection first before we can decide what the United States needs. We have to go back and say, how do we get it so wrong? Uh, What happened in this war to prove us wrong? And therefore, what do we need going forward?
0: And also how might that apply to other kind of envisaged scenarios? For instance, China and its military capability, at least on paper versus what the reality might look like one day.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think this is probably giving the Chinese huge pause for thought. I mean, if one thing that used to drive me a bit batty was this discussion about the Chinese launching an amphibious assault on Taiwan as if, okay they could do that. Well, Jesus. I mean, an amphibious assault is probably the most complex operation in modern war. Yeah. The idea that China, which has never launched an amphibious assault, has an army that hasn't done state to state complex Operation Warfare for decades, maybe since the Chinese Civil War, but certainly you would say since the the war with with Vietnam in the late 70s. The idea that somehow they would, be, oh yeah, we're going to have an amphibious assault on Taiwan, one of the most heavily defended islands in the world, um, always struck me as crazy. Yeah. You know, this is this is a recipe for disaster on all sides. I mean, it would just be mayhem. So I think hopefully this will give the Chinese, and indeed the, the, the signs are now that the Chinese are actually gonna be very restrained for a few years where they try to digest these lessons. But it might teach us to stop looking at war as war games. Um, right? Which I think is, you know, we, we, all these darn maps with lines in red as if this is like a German Blitzkrieg in the second world war, that was a huge disservice because it made war look far easier and, and cleaner to do than it is, actually is.
0: Yeah. No, and and you know, another aspect of this, I think that we all need to sort of pause and, and scrutinize and, and take a, a moment of introspection is, you know, I fully believe and, and it's been well reported and it just makes logical sense. One of the reasons Putin felt emboldened to do this and one of the, the reasons his, his inner circle of strong men felt emboldened to do this is they had this perception that the West was in terminal decline, right? Yeah. Uh, look at America, it's fought all these wars in the Middle East, it's lost all of them. Uh, look at the the fall of Kabul. Uh, the projection that you know this the, the the Afghan army, which Americans have spent twenty years building up, it would you know would would somehow sustain itself, it all went to dust very quickly. America it, it culturally is riven apart uh, with you know on the one hand wokeness and on the other hand this kind of you know sort of neo reactionary cadre of thinkers and and activists and politicians and so on, um, and now <laughs> you know Russia puts its hand in the fire, gets badly, badly burnt. The West suddenly looks more united. I mean, obviously there's areas of vulnerability and wobbliness uh, looking at you, Germany and France, but you know, that's, it ever was thus. But the West seems to be more cohesive and united than it's been in a long time. And America for the first time in a long time is kind of not an idle spectator to a foreign conflict. It's it's in a way, I mean, an active participant and certainly an enabler. Mm But we're not on the back foot. Somebody else is is on the back foot right now. Um, And I think, you know, geopolitically, this is an important moment too, because there are a lot of people in the US, uh, certainly the foreign policy establishment, but no doubt the defense and intelligence establishment who thought that, you know, the days of America pretending it could walk and chew gum at the same time are over. We we simply cannot do certain things anymore, right? I mean, this idea of, of restraint, this idea of a kind of, Almost a recessional in terms of America's uh, projection of power abroad. Um, do you think that this war is going to have implications on that front as well? In other words, you know, if there's another crisis in the world and calls for direct American intervention, obviously not involving, you know, um, going to war with a, a, a nuclear hyperpower, but you know, say in the Middle East or say I don't know somewhere else, uh, you know, Southeast Asia. That all of a sudden, you know, what we've been hearing over the last ten years or so, certainly with respect to the Syria crisis, that maybe actually America has rediscovered some of its confidence, some of its its uh, resolve with respect to its capabilities, or or is that looking? Yeah, it's the it's, part- it's an
1: interesting question. I mean, first yeah. of all, I mean the fascinating thing was Putin's thought the 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 U.S. or NATO countries were in decline, but actually the country that is in manifest decline is Russia. Right. Russia has. A demographic crisis. Its population is dropping. Its life expectancy is dropping. Its economic position in the world was was you know not not powerful. So it was fascinating how the overreading of things um, like Afghanistan or the culture wars in the United States right. believe made them believe the United States was in decline when actually Russia. Is in a far more serious situation of relative decline, but that, that that's just an interesting reflection. Right. The long-term implications of it for the U.S. are—I um, mean, I think it, it's whether the United States could still go down a populist route. And I think yep. we we have to be very careful from saying, you know, the Ukraine this represents a seminal break, as everyone was saying to begin with. You never know if it represents a seminal break. Right. You certainly do see the Republican Party quite riven on this between those who are very much pro-Ukraine and, and some who are from the more Trumpite wing that are that are um, trying to sort of make eyes at Putin. Assuming that, but overall Americans seem very pro-Ukraine. Yeah. So assuming that the Republican Party doesn't go down a full Trumpite pro-Putin wing, I think we can say, if that happens, if it does, if that doesn't happen, then yes, you will probably have a greater American commitment to NATO than there was before last year you know, that, that 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 sort of seems to be the Democrat Party on the whole is in favor of that and part of the Republican Party.
0: Well, and this is the the, the kind of the strange disconnect as well. I mean, you know, as you say, the the majority of of the country, meaning the United States, is very much pro-Ukraine and certainly taken with President Zelensky. This includes Republican voters who still turn on Fox News and still see Tucker Carlson on a nightly basis (laughs) trafficking in conspiracy theories about bio labs or outwardly plumping for Putin's victory, right? Um, At some point, that disconnect is going to lead to a political crisis on the right mm-hmm. you know i mean who are we fundamentally we had this kind of moment of of trumpian populist mm-hmm. rhetoric uh, you know neo-isolationism and this idea that our cultural grievances at home are manifesting in and at the international level and actually putin and, and victor orban they're right about many things and we should be more like them or you know hey you know america always loves an underdog because at one point we were one ourselves and that's kind mm-hmm. of ingrained in the historical consciousness. Um, it's still being taught in schools, no matter what the, you know, the neo-reactionary crowd has to say about the, uh, the curriculum these days. Um, and yeah, I mean, Ukraine has, has kind of uh, inspired and, and amazed the world. My concern, and, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. My concern is mm-hmm. as much as we are impressed by uh, the little guy pulling one over on, on the big bad bully, we also have a very contracted attention span. And yep. you, know, you had talked about the, the prospects of a long war, probably raged in Eastern Ukraine. I don't see Americans paying attention to that. I mean, we've already moved on to the, the slap heard around the world of the Oscars, mm. right? We're already back to the petty narcissistic yep. crap that sort of defines us on a day-to-day basis. To what extent do you think that a loss of American interest or appetite to see Ukraine win is going to affect our strategic calculations here? Or is it not? I mean, it, does that actually in a way make it easier for policy planners to say, right, here's the weapon systems they need. Let's let's send this right away. Or, you know, to 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 kind of come up with a coherent five or even 10 year plan down the line. How are we going to put this country back together
1: and how are we going to keep Russia out of it? Well, it's it's a quite I mean I, I always think it's not so much rooting for the underdog as rooting for the side that 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 you think is gonna win. I mean, I think what, what's really undermined Tucker Carlson and that wing of the Republican party is in fact that they were protecting Putin as this strong, powerful, you know, wise leader. Yeah. And actually, instead of this extraordinary bumbler who has unleashed this self-harming operation, and that's the problem they have right now: is that they were backing a losing horse. Right. And if the Ukrainians continue to do what they're doing, and they should be able to, if they're they're given uh, enough support, then so that's what will undermine that narrative and continue to do it: is that you'll just be, you know, wow, how can you back the great Putin? Putin is a genius idea. Right. When it comes to the long-term attachment of the Americans. I'm actually one of those who believes it does tend to be about perceptions of victory more than loss of attention. Mm. If the war seems to be devolving into a stalemate uh, that has no resolution one way or the other, then they might lose focus. But if it does look like on the whole, as we see now, Ukrainians are fighting really well, very effectively, uh, and if they continue to get aid, they can come out on top, then my guess is American attention will stay positively on the war. It, you know, that's what happened with with Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah. The American attention was very much on the war when they thought the United States was doing well. When it all of a sudden looked like the United States might lose these wars, then people say, okay, time to go. Right.
0: Um, and just as a, a, a final, point on all of this. I, and I, I don't want you to have to go on record making a prediction, but I'm going to ask you to anyway. Um, yeah. You know, Do you see this devolving into a stalemate or do you see the Ukrainians possibly actually pushing the Russians back to a point where, um, and this is something else that, that, that has come up a lot, um, look, if Putin feels cornered, if he feels like yeah. he cannot succeed using conventional means, would he resort to unconventional means? Would he use a weapon of mass destruction? Tactical nukes, chemical weapons have been suggested based on the kind of messaging campaign that the, the Russians have engaged in. And how would that alter the calculation? I mean, at, at that point, does, does NATO get involved? Um, I mean, based on what you've seen thus far, hmm. give us a kind of projection of, of what Russia is likely to do if it feels like it's it's losing in its new strategy of of, you know,
1: well, let's do, let's talk about separate that into the conventional and non-conventional. okay. If the war remains conventional, it will not go on for that much longer if Russia doesn't fully mobilize. I think what what we'll need from Russia is a sign that they're going to call up not just a year of conscripts, but even more, create a large army, go back into to Ukraine, you know with it with a really large force. And then the war could go on. If we don't see that, then I don't see how it goes on for more than another year. Mm-hmm. Because I think the Russians just won't have the ability to continue the war uh, at that point. So I think there'll have to be some kind of negotiation. this will end with negotiations at some point, because Ukraine cannot conquer Russia. So right. you know, So it's going to have to end in negotiations. So I think what we need to do is watch what Russia is doing and watch what it's willing to mobilize. And then that will give us an indication of how long the war will go on. But right now we're not seeing a lot of special societal mobilization. In which right. case, again, I can't see it lasting for for more than a year at this point.
0: Well, and also, I mean, what is the, the, the percentage of their total armed forces that they've committed to this fight? Are they gonna send the entirety of their army or their military into Ukraine leaving, you know, their Eastern flank completely exposed. If, you know, China's, well, obviously they have the relationship with China, but you know, this seems to me the height of folly, right? You put all your forces into one battle, which you were your one war, which you are losing. Yeah. Um, You know, it just doesn't seem even someone in in Putin's, I I suppose degraded cognitive state Mm -hmm. is not prepared to do that
1: just yet. Well, I mean, it's remarkable though. The rest of Russia is basically underfunded. Right. Again, I don't think we've ever seen, we basically have the largest country in the world which has 70% I think the, the Pentagon estimate is 70 to 75 of, percent of its all of its military force right. directed at Ukraine. So the rest of the country is basically undefended. Um, you know that that's sort of where they are. So um, so I mean I, I don't think that can continue. That's right. one of the, that can't continue for that long. The, the going to the non-conventional, that's such a risk. Because that does make NATO intervention likely. Yeah, you know if, if you're going to be launching tactical nukes on the border of NATO, um, yeah. if that's a really dangerous escalation, and it, by the way, it calls into question everything you've done. Right. If you get to the point where you're you've screwed up the invasion so badly, you have to use tactical nukes, that it basically it it it, it ends up being you know completely fraudulent. As for chemical and biological, that's interesting. One, one, we don't actually know what Russian capabilities are Mm. in this way. So, and and I'm not a, a Russian biological chemical weapons expert. We assume they have some capabilities, but they're not that easy to use because what they can do is terrorize with those, but it's not quite clear that they can um, actually, you know, how are they going to take a military objective? Are they going to uh, just basically saturate Kiev in chemical biological weapons? Mm. Yeah, that's a really risky strategy. Yeah, um, that is. So uh, they might want to use them, but I don't know, again, how you tie those to Russian victory. If they use them, it'll be more just out of sheer sort of frustration and humiliation and trying to believe they will present a way to have a, a political result.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, they they had been used, I forget how, certainly over a hundred times in Syria. Yeah. Um, and it didn't fundamentally alter the landscape or the battlescape uh, yeah. of the war. I mean, you know, it, it, yes, it, it, it kind of, you know, it harmed quite a number of civilians each time sarin gas was deployed or and more, more likely it was chlorine um, bombs, but you know, the war pressed on anyway. And again, we, the Ukrainians have got capabilities that the Syrians on the other side simply never had. Yeah. Um, well, listen, uh, Phillips, this has been a, a really searching and, and in-depth discussion, which is exactly what I, I wanted it to be. I mean, is there any other aspect of this that you think we're not paying close enough attention to, but we should? Because, you know, again, you're you're sort of in this this community of gadflies and and minority views that have have proved to be, I think, prescient and correct in a way that, uh, you know. Well, well, it's what I
1: sort of said before, look at see what Russia is mobilizing now. Yeah. That's the thing to pay attention to because what they have is not enough to do the job. Mm. And if they're simply trying to slap together a few more impromptu BTGs, that's not enough either. Yeah. So I think that's what I'm paying attention to are are what kind of mobilization of resources do they have? And if they're not willing to mobilize mobilize a lot more, well, then this war won't go on for that much longer. They'll have to be a deal. Interesting.
0: All right, well, I wanna thank you very much, uh, Professor Phillips uh, O'Brien, Professor of Strategic Studies at the University of St. Andrews. You have been listening to Foreign Office and we will continue our coverage of obviously the biggest story in the world, which is Russia's war on Ukraine uh, in the coming weeks. Um, I'm Michael Weiss uh, and thank you very much.